So today on the uh, traditional Christian calendar is the third Sunday of Lent. Um, it's the period of about six weeks or so before Easter, 40 days, when we, re- when we remember Jesus' suffering. And uh, a year ago, the third Sunday of Lent, it's, it's based on the lunar calendar anyway. It's a little different. So um, the, a year ago, the third Sunday of Lent, so the same period in the church calendar, was March 7th, and that's the bulletin um, from that year. Um, you can see that uh, Dick preached on the way of the cross, Naveen prayed, the Corfields planned the service, and we, we would have been in, still on Zoom at that time. I'm sure it was a good service, but I have to admit I don't actually remember a lot about it. I don't know if anyone else does. Um, maybe the Corfields do. I don't know. Um, but on August 6th of this year, uh, Marilyn and I will have been married for 17 years. I don't know what jewel you're supposed to get on that day, but anyway, the 17th, 17th anniversary. Um, it was uh, a lot longer ago, of course, 17 years, uh, but I remember a lot more about that day. I remember uh, playing checkers with my groomsmen in the children's uh, Sunday school room in the church that I hadn't actually been to for probably about eight years by that point, um, but this was the church that I actually grew up in, uh, and this uh, I remember learning to sing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands in that room, and about King David. Um, I remember there was some miscommunication with the worship leader uh, from the uh, the church, and there were no lyrics on the screen uh, whenever we sang the songs. Um, But fortunately, we had invited a lot of our friends from campus ministry who knew all the songs, and so they sang very loudly and in harmony and all that. So people in the audience who didn't know that that was what we were supposed to have lyrics commented about how beautiful it was to have people singing from the audience. Um, I remember uh, that during the reception, we actually didn't get to eat any of the cheesecake um, that, we, that we had bought a, a wedding cake that was made of cheesecake, and we were really excited about it. Um, but we didn't actually get to eat it because we'd also decided that instead of the traditional um, reception line, we would go around and meet people at the tables individually. I think Marilyn is chewing on my hand at that point because she's so hungry. <laughs> um, and uh, let's see. But, of course, I remember that I got to do it all with my best friend and my dearest love. Um, weddings are high-stakes events. Um, the modern wedding industry... Oh, okay. I pay no attention to the, the uh, whatever that is, the screensaver. Um, the modern wedding industry and the reality shows that explode it have raised the stakes a bit in recent years. But weddings have always been moments when um, nerves are on edge and tempers are short as two families awkwardly agree that their children are now adults and that they're moving into a new family that will probably take precedence over the family that they were born into. Producing any big event will inevitably lead to mistakes and oversights, not putting the lyrics on the screen, etc. But the momentous nature of weddings gives these problems far more perceived importance than they often deserve. Weddings are moments when life changes, and so these events fix themselves in our memories far, far more permanently than average days. And so that's the story where, that's the context of the story we read about today that Jillian read about uh, from the Gospel of John. There's a wedding. We don't actually know whose wedding it is, but the fact that the mother of Jesus, Mary, is there suggests that it's probably someone related to the family of Jesus. And the wedding prob- uh, planners have a major problem. The wine has run out. And this is a big deal, and even today it would be a big deal. Um, Even very conservative Christians who avoid alcohol uh, altogether will sometimes make exceptions for weddings because there's a cultural expectation that weddings have wine. 
wine in Jesus's culture was even more an uh, important, important part of the covenant ritual. It was necessary for the ceremony, somewhat like the bread and the, the wine or the juice in our communion. And it symbolized various things like joy, blessing, and commitment. A wedding where the wine ran out would be remembered, but not in a good way. And Mary asks Jesus for help. Jesus claims that his time has not yet come, uh, but then he gives in and he asks that several large stone jars that are used for washing hands be filled with water. And he miraculously turns the water into wine, saving the day. The wine he generates is so good that the master of ceremonies comments on it and notes that it's unusual to save the best wine till the end of the ceremony when it might not be as appreciated as much um, as it would have been at the start of the ceremony when the guests, uh, before the guest senses had been dulled by other al- alcohol. And the narrator tells us that this was Jesus' first miracle. The party ends, and Jesus stays with his family and rests for a few days. So that's the story. That's the summary we heard. Um, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from this story. Uh, Jesus introduces his ministry at a wedding, uh, and the common texts for weddings often make a point of uh, referencing this, saying that Jesus blessed marriage. Um, Jesus enjoys a party, which might help us to understand Jesus is a man not only of sorrows, but also of joy and of celebration. We see his compassion for the wedding party and his respect for his mother, even involving himself uh, with this problem when he didn't seem to really want to because the timeline um, was different than he, he expected. And good sermons can and have been preached on these topics, but they're not really what struck me as I was reading through the passage for this sermon. What caught, me, what caught my attention as I was reading this week in the context of this third uh, Sunday of Lent was that even this celebratory passage of a wedding leads us in the gospel to the cross. I'm struck by the brilliant way in which the story of Jesus, like a well-crafted play or symphony or poem, uses repetition and variation to help us understand the many facets of its theme. Before I go any further, let me acknowledge that I know for some of us, it feels a little uncomfortable or maybe even just silly to read scripture for its literary structure and patterns. And I should say that I absolutely believe in the literal and historical truth of the events of the gospel, but I'm by training a literary scholar. And so I'm fascinated at the theme and repetition in this book and the way that it points us to the cross. I think the author of this gospel even gives me the permission to do this. He begins, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. John opens his letter to the churches in 1 John in, uh, by, with much of the same language. He says that Jesus is the word that God spoke when he created. And we're told that all, by this word, all things were made that have been made. And this word, John says, is Jesus. And as hard as it is for me to wrap my head around that idea, it must have been even crazier for those whom, as John put it in his uh, letter, uh, heard the man Jesus' voice, saw him with their own eyes, and touched him with their hands. The word that created the universe became, as John tells us, flesh and lived among us. Building or creating with words might seem kind of a weird metaphor at first, um, or even reality. We're told that Jesus, that God spoke, uh, let there be light, and there was light. Um, and we get a little picture of that as uh, sub-creators of people who create as our uh, creator did when we think about writers of fiction or writers of software. 
those do the same thing. Uh, when I say I made an application in JavaScript, I'm asserting that I made something by writing a bunch of words out, um, but do something. At the end of John's Gospel, uh, he writes that Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have, ha- would not have enough room for the books that would have been written. The words of the first speaker, God, are so many that they cannot be contained in the world they created. So this is all to say that I think it might be okay and even useful to study the words of this passage pretty carefully. So let's begin with this, uh, the first words of this passage. On the third day. Okay, so I know if you've been going to church for a while, these words immediately call to mind the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the reader of, readers of John's gospel uh, probably knew this basic story as well. John's gospel is the last gospel written, and certainly the story of Jesus would have been told and uh, retold many times, probably before people actually read what else Jesus did. And this, this idea of Jesus being risen, r- rising on the third day was well known. And in fact, um, the, uh, the words the third day in the Gospel of John, are uh, in uh, every other place, are used to refer to the crucifixion and the resurrection. It seems like John is using this language in this part, uh, this passage, to trigger us to thinking of the story of the resurrection. It's like the background music at this wedding is playing the same melody that will play underneath the resurrection later on. In fact, as I said, it, it's this, this phrase, the third day, is used over and over, but always about the resurrection. And it's also important to know that it, it's an idiom, actually. It's a, it means a particular thing, the third day. Um, I remember when uh, I was about five or so at my grandparents' house, and we were dyeing Easter eggs on Good Friday. And I'd drawn an empty tomb with a wax pencil on an egg, and as I was hop- happily plopping it into a, uh, a cup of vinegar and Pa's green dye or something, I realized something that shook my faith. If Jesus was crucified on Friday, then he would have been dead Friday to Saturday, and Saturday to Sunday, and then if it was the third day, Sunday to Monday, so the third day wouldn't have been uh, Sunday, but a Monday. Could the Bible be wrong? And uh, my dad explained, uh, I think not entirely accurately, day one was Friday, day two was Saturday, and day three was Sunday, which at the moment relieved my doubts. Um, My anxieties over textual inconsistencies such as this one may not be completely relieved even today, but there's at least an answer to Little Doug uh, for this particular problem of the Greek language. The, the word third day here in Greek means something like the day after tomorrow. So it is actually, my dad is right. It is um, today, the, ne- the next day, and then the third day. But in the case of the wedding, so remember, so step back a few minutes. Remember, we're at this wedding, and this wedding says it happened on the third day. But what's the third day after? What was the day before yesterday, if this is the day after tomorrow? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, in this case, in the, in, the, in the book of John, in the first chapter of John, we see that John is actually counting out the days of a week. He actually counts uh, day one, you know, he uses the words the next day, but he counts uh, through four days and then he skips to, to get to the, this third day. So let's just look at uh, the Gospel of John uh, quickly. And what I think is really interesting is John's week in the first chapter of the book of John, um, and if you want to, you can follow along with John 1, um, really lines up with Genesis 1 in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. So let's go uh, to the very beginning. So uh, in John 1, as we said before, John begins, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we can see here um, that there is a, uh, a similarity here with, of course, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then he says, let there be light, and there was light. And this continues through the rest of this first chapter. And I, I looked at a bunch of commentaries to try to see who else has observed this. And there are people that have. They make different connections. So understand that this is my interpretation we're going through. Uh, there are other interpretations of how these days line up. But a lot of people do kind of agree that John is probably saying, in first, is consciously patterning his, his first chapter on uh, the first chapter of Genesis. So then um, in uh, day two in Genesis, we're told... God said, let there be a vault, uh, a vault between the water. So he's separating uh, sky from the seas beneath. And if we look at the, um, the Gospel of John in that next section, um, we see that uh, John uh, tells us about Jesus uh, being baptized. And so uh, there's a Jesus who created, who separated the waters, is now standing in the water, and John remembers that a dove came down and settled on Jesus when he was baptized. And if we remember in the first chapter, the first bits of, uh, the, of Genesis, there's the spirit of God is uh, hovering or brooding over the face of the deep like a dove. And so we've got, again, in this case, the, the, in Genesis, the waters are separated. In John, heaven and earth come together and touch uh, at, at the point of Jesus. And then John says the next day, so he's essentially advancing the PowerPoint slide as well, and he says, on the next day, uh, John the Baptist was there with two of his disciples. He meets um, a bunch of different people, but he ends by meeting, uh, Nathan- or he ends by meeting Peter. And he, he says, uh, he's calling them out, and he says, on, uh, you will now be called uh, Cephas, which is translated as Peter, which means rocky. Um, and in Genesis, the third day of Genesis, we're told that God separates the waters out and calls the land, separating that from the water, and we see dry land or rocky land. Uh, called out again of water because we have um, we have uh, uh, the Baptist happening there. Okay, this is the last day uh, before the wedding that we're going to hear about. Um, so day four, God creates the lights in the skies. He creates the stars, moons, and moon and suns, um, and uh, gives them authority basically to govern the day and the night. And then in John uh, chapter or this fourth day in John, the next day. Uh, Jesus calls the last disciples that are named in the Gospel of John. And the last one is Nathaniel. If you've been following, if you've seen season two of The Chosen, you hear about how Nathaniel is sitting under the fig tree after you know, The Chosen. He's somehow built a bad building or something. And uh, anyway, he's very sad. And uh, he meets Jesus. And in the Gospels, this, uh, he's at least sitting under the fig tree. And Jesus says, I saw you under, under the fig tree. Nathaniel says, oh, you must be the son of God and the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe because I said you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things than that. And he added, very truly I tell you, heaven will open and the angels of God will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So again, we get this picture of heaven and earth unifying. So the separation happens in Genesis. The unification happens in the book of John. And so that brings us to today's passage. And John clicks the advance button on his PowerPoint advancer twice and, uh, to skip over the fifth day and says that on the third day, um, this, uh, uh, this wedding happens. And so 
uh, this is the, the sixth day of the week and the sixth day of creation. And if you remember the sixth day of creation, that's when God creates Adam and Eve, uh, creates man, humankind. And in Genesis 2, um, we're told a little bit more about the creation of, of mankind, especially the creation of woman. Um, he says, uh, we get the story of how no suitable partner could be found for Adam. And then uh, Adam's rib is taken out of Adam and uh, Eve is created. And at the end, Adam expresses excitement about his new partner, saying, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then there's a little editorial note. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So there's a reference here to marriage in the sixth day of creation. And we're actually at a wedding again on the sixth day of John's week. And in in Ephesians, Paul actually uses this passage uh, as well to talk about the unification of Christ and the church, um, that this is why a man leaves his father and mother. Um, So we remember just kind of recapping. We've heard the dove leaving heaven and settling on the waters with Jesus. The angels are in transit up and down Jacob's stairs. Um, We see uh, a, a son leaving his father and mother, or his father in this case, and um, joining with his bride. So we have the, the story of a wedding, of a unification happening all through the book of John, sort of reflecting the book of Genesis. And of course, this isn't just any wedding. It's the wedding where uh, Jesus does his first miracle. And it's interesting to me that this miracle, even though it's the first, is only recorded in the Gospel of John. And I, I don't know why Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't record this story, if it's where Jesus began his ministry. But I, thought, well, I wonder if it's because of John's relationship to Mary. Um, remember, we're told that uh, Jesus on the cross said, behold your son, um, to Mary and to John, behold your mother. Um, and so, and it says that John took Mary into his household after that. Um, and so this is a, a story that would have been really important to Mary. She was kind of orchestrating this first miracle. And it's interesting that, that Mary isn't actually named in the entire Gospel of John. She's just referred to as the mother of Jesus. And likewise, John is just referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, so they're sharing the story together uh, and talking about um, and remembering it. And so it's a story I think that Mary wanted to tell. But John has been so careful in his arrangement of details. Why does he include this story here? Um, so the wedding has the theme of the sixth day. But what about the conversion of water into wine? Is that just coincidental? Well, I, I don't think so, because we're told that the wine that is served in this wedding, uh, after Jesus converts the water into wine, is better than everything that came before. This echoes the statement in Genesis when God calls the sixth day very good after calling all the other days just good. Um, two days before, Nathaniel says, uh, Jesus says to Nathaniel that he'll see even greater things than uh, what he's already seen. And so we get, have this theme of things getting better and better and better and better um, as the gospel progresses. And it's all, I think, actually pointing us to the end of the feast, at the end of the gospel of John. So as the, Jesus' ministry is wrapping up at the, in the end of the gospel of John, John again says, um, Jesus entered Jerusalem six days before the feast of the Passover. So he's starting up another week. He doesn't count out the days quite like he does at the beginning of the book. But it, he makes a point of saying that the crucifixion is happening on the sixth day of the week of Friday. So again, we're on a sixth day, just like the wedding and just like the creation of man. And on this sixth day, there's a stone jar sitting there at the bottom of the cross. And when Jesus says he's thirsty, the soldiers uh, put in a sponge and lift it up to Jesus' lips. And it, that, that stone jar held wine. Um, not very good wine. In fact, some translations 
render it as vinegar, but it probably was the wine that the soldiers were drinking with their lunch. Um, and when Jesus, uh, when Jesus dies, the soldiers want to make sure that he's dead, and so they stab him, and blood and water pours out of his side. And so we're back to water again, and it feels like the story is over. The, the miracles have been unraveling. The, the really good wine is gone, we're back to bad wine, and then we're back to water. Um, but John begins the chapter after the crucifixion with a really thrilling phrase. On the first day of the week. So John, who's been so obsessed with weeks, is introducing that something new is about to happen. And it's only going to get better. And a week later, the first day of the week, many of the disciples, except for Thomas, have seen the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus appears to Thomas and says, um, because you uh, have seen me, you believe, but more blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe. And so we're getting, a, a, the, again, the theme of things are getting better and better and better. Um, you're, uh, you're excited because you, uh, you believe that I, you know, I, I said that you were under the fig tree. You're going to see even greater things. Thomas, you believe because you saw me resurrected. There's going to be people that are even more blessed because they believe but yet not have seen, but haven't yet seen me. The good wine is yet to be served. So I know that's a lot of kind of literary comparisons, and I am wondering myself, what does that mean for me today? What does that mean for us? And I'm not actually sure that John or Mary wanted us to come away from the story of the wedding with a to-do list for our week, but rather to know a little bit more about Jesus and what he's like and how he reveals his kingdom to us. To begin, I think that um, the notion that a force that created the universe is described as a word with intelligence um, is something that sort of makes my hair stand up on end a little. I can sort of imagine God speaking to the eternal smart speaker and saying, Alexa, turn on the lights. But my imagination strains a little bit when I imagine that those words are actually themselves an intelligent and creative force. And that that intelligence was and is incarnated in flesh as Jesus. A man who lived in poverty in what was considered a third world country in an era before air conditioning or water treatment plants. I... I think I, it makes me really sincerely ponder what I say I believe as a Christian. And I begin to understand why Jesus compared himself to a stumbling block for those trying to uh, build things and theologies. Believing in an invisible, all-powerful God who created the universe and who interacts with humans can seem at odds with reason, but I think there's part of our humanity that sort of assumes it. In nearly every culture, there are gods, there are creators, and even uh, rational non-believers today often talk about the universe wanting something or about this, the, the universe seem to make this happen. Um, we, they laugh about it, but we still have in our, I think in our human nature, an idea of a, a kind of anthropomorphic something that's out there. He has set eternity on the hands of men, um, says Solomon. Okay, but... What if that eternity, that something that's out there, the universe, was somehow contained in a man with a distinct personality and appearance? I know we, we are familiar with that idea, but if you really think about that, it's, it's pretty crazy. And I think as much as the disciples were blessed to know Jesus in the flesh, I think they, we probably maybe benefit a bit by not having encountered Jesus in the physical form. We can and do imagine Jesus as we want him to be at any particular point. But for Nathaniel and Thomas and Peter and Andrew, Jesus looked a certain way, he sounded a certain way, and had a personality that was distinct. 
And that can feel so limiting for an infinite being, especially when we're told that this body of Jesus was not just like a, a hermit crab shell that he used for 30 years or so and then discarded, that that body was resurrected and somehow standing at the right hand of God. And there's some wiggle room, I understand, that the resurrected body of Jesus seems to take different forms. Mary doesn't recognize him as at first. Hardly anybody does when they first see him. Even Peter, when they see him on the edge of the shore, they all know he was the Lord, but no one dares to ask him who he was. So there's some some way in which the body changes after resurrection. But still, there was a time when the words that shaped light and dry land and giraffes and aphids and acorns was at a wedding when the wine ran out. And this person's mom came over to ask him uh, to do something to avoid embarrassing her friends. Avoid embarrassing her friends. And without faith, this is foolishness, I get it. But through faith, I think it's actually an amazing idea. There is an interface, a point of connection between heaven and earth, between the creator and the created. A few months ago, I was trying to get some files off my old uh, Macintosh and copy it to my MacBook Pro. The files were pretty old, but I had plenty of software emulators to play the, new, the old software on my new computer. If only I could find some way to physically copy them from one device to the other. My new back MacBook only had USB-C ports. Don't worry if you don't know what that is. And the old laptop didn't even have a USB port. But eventually, I found a way of stringing together several devices to get a compact flash reader that was able to communicate between both devices. This compact flash card was very new technology for my old uh, laptop, very old technology for my current machine, but it provided a physical interface between the two. And the body of Jesus, the word that created bodies, also serves as the joining place. Heaven can connect to earth. The spirit of God can rest on the waters and angels can travel up and down the stairs via the body of the Son of Man. And today's story tells us about a wedding. Often in the first century, weddings were as much matters of politics as love. If, um, go back. Yeah, so uh, if you know the story of, king, of Henry V, the king of England marries Catherine of France, and for a moment it seems like France and England are going to become one nation because the children born of these marriages cements the relationship between the two parties. The child has the same family relation to both previously distinct families. He calls both grandma and grandpa. The children of immigrants, even when both parents are of the same culture, often also serve this connecting role between one culture and another. When Marilyn and I first moved to Sleepy Hollow, I usually walked back from the Metro North Station through a mostly Spanish-speaking neighborhood. And one day I stopped at a grocery store in that neighborhood to, to pick up some fruit. And uh, if, you know, to the grocery stores, they'll have, there's those, um, uh, those plastic bags that are often on rolls next to the, um, the fruit. Anyway, I pulled one of the plastic bags off and I couldn't get it open. I was trying to open it up. I don't have fingernails exactly, so I was trying to open it up. And this little girl who was standing next to her parents walked up to me and said, do you need help? <laughs> and extended her hand. And reluctantly, I handed her the bag, and she opened it easily and handed it back to me. Um, and this has never happened to me in a grocery store where English is the most spoken language. But I expect this little girl was used to helping adults who couldn't communicate with each other and had developed a firm, in-control approach to situations where adults were clearly out of their depths. And I think Jesus is like one of these children. He has an earthly mother and a heavenly father. And in him, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God exists in one being, connecting the two. And maybe that's, often why, that's why Jesus so often compares the kingdom, coming and kingdom to a wedding feast. In Jesus, the distinction between the speaker and the spoken is united. 
by the word that was from the beginning. And what's completely mind-blowing to me is that this is somehow more than just a metaphor or, or a poetic idea, that it's at least a, a dim reflection as through a glass darkly as, of what happened at the, at the insurrection, at the insurrection, the <laughs> incarnation uh, 2,000 years ago. And what's crazy is that Jesus says that he causes his spirit to live in us, further unifying heaven and earth. That means that we can, in the words of Paul, participate in the divine nature, and we're joint heirs with Christ in the same family, um, with Jesus, who we are told is the firstborn among many siblings. And this means that we have within us, as, as Claire was saying, praying today, the same power and spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus told his disciples, whoever believes in me will do works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will give you whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for me, of me anything in my name, and I will do it. Even greater wine is coming. And this is an, an amazing passage that I know can be easily abused if we don't remember that Jesus said the Son himself can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So we don't necessarily have a blank check to name and claim our selfish desires and a perversion of faith, but we do uh, know that we can walk like Jesus, and as we do, and as we become more like him, we begin to have his power in us. There's a popular theater concentration exercise where you stand facing a partner and then try to mirror their every movement as they move. I kind of think of Jesus as something like that with the Father. As he's mirroring the Father's movements, we mirror his movements. And we know that if we can see him and hear him and follow him, we have been given the authority to do things that will make the, wedding at the, the wine at the wedding in Cana seem like the vinegar offered to Jesus at the sponge. By the end of the gospel, John's action is skipping from six day to six day. The crowning achievements keep getting outdone. And he's ready to do increasingly great things, and he wants us to be a part of it. And I, I don't know what this means for me yet. Sometimes sermons come kind of easy, and I know exactly what I'm supposed to say, but I was writing this one up until last night, actually this morning. Um, but as I've thought through this passage, I've ended up coming to this place that's a lot more charismatic than I'm usually comfortable occupying. Um, I think that this, but I think that this is where the passage led me today and maybe where it leads us today. So as we sit here on the first day of the week, do you sense any divine movements from the spirit who's living inside of you? I think we should spend a few minutes just praying and paying attention. Um, and as we've done over the last couple of weeks, listening to God in ways that Dick has trained us to do. And we're not in charge of God's movements, so we might, we might not catch them at this time. But if anyone does, as you're listening, I think it would be edifying for the rest of us to hear and join in this wedding dance together. So let's take about three minutes or so and just pray and listen.